The trusty old lab shotgun. <laughs> That's right. It hangs above the tissue culture hood. We realize what we don't want to do, but we don't take that important next step of identifying what we do want to do. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, it's a new year, so we start out with some resolutions for graduate students and postdocs too. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 86. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy New Year, Daniel. Happy 2018. We and made it. Yeah, that's uh, we're pretty far into January now, but hopefully you had a good New Year's and have survived all the cold snaps. Uh, actually, I took a couple days away. I left on New Year's morning to drive to the beach for two days of board gaming. And not swimming, I assume. Why go to the beach? Well, it's really cheap to go to the beach this okay, time yeah, of sure. year. Uh, and we decidedly were not going to spend much time outside, which was which was good because it was unseasonably cold for the beach. I think it was below freezing the whole time we were there. So we weren't even tempted to go outside, but we had a, a nice ocean view uh, while we were board gaming. So that was fun. Sounds like fun. Well, welcome back. Thank you. Dan, I've got some, some good news to share. We have a new Patreon patron. Oh, who did we find? Peter is our newest patron, so thank you, Peter, for your support. Super exciting. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, and speaking of Patreon, Dan, we have been talking about doing this for a while, but we are going to host a live chat with our Patreon patrons, and we have a date for that. Yeah, so we spent some time looking forward to the new year and saying, what are the topics we want to make sure we cover this year. What are some things that we could do, but we're not quite convinced about? And we thought it'd be cool to get together with some of our Patreon supporters and have them act as kind of an advisory board. Look over the schedule, tell us what we should talk about when and help us come up with that schedule. So uh, it'd be a great time to meet everybody and then to get some of their feedback on how to take the show. Yeah, so we will be doing that on February the 6th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And we will also send a follow-up reminder directly to our patrons uh, through Patreon. This episode and one more episode will come out before February 6th. So uh, if you'd like to become a patron, there's still time to do so, and you can get involved in that chat. Have we decided on video chat or just typing chat? I don't know if we've decided. I think this will be a, this will be a text chat to start with. Using uh, the Patreon uh, uh, platform. As, as far as I know, I believe Patreon has text chat capabilities. So we're going to try that. And if this goes really well, this might be something that we we hopefully can can get going on a regular basis. Who knows? Maybe video chats down the line, but uh, I'm not there yet. So have we considered pen pals, where everybody just writes a letter, sticks it in the mailbox? I I will greatly accept any any handwritten note that okay, anyone wants, wants to give. And we've gotten some with with listener beer uh, in the past, nice handwritten notes. But speaking of listener beer, Dan, we got some listener beer. Crack it open, Josh. All right, Dan. So this is cool. This was brought to us by a listener, Aspen, who is a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill. And Aspen originally is from New Mexico, and she astutely pointed out that we have not sampled a New Mexico beer yet on the show. That was an oversight, but not an intentional oversight. That's right, Dan. You actually mentioned uh, we were discussing this beer before we turned the microphones on. 
Uh, we should we should get a beer map together on the website. Yeah, we'll have Germany, <laughs> that's true, a that's ton of North Carolina, <laughs> and then whatever listener beer we are, we'll get our true. hands on. Yeah. Didn't occur to me. Now we have to have an international. It's going to be big, map. yeah. Uh, but anyway, so so thanks Aspen for bringing this, and Aspen also. So she was able to arrange over the holidays. I guess she traveled back home to see her family. So she brought us back this beer from New Mexico, and she also astutely pointed out that the IPA-free fall is over because it's no longer fall. Hooray! Bring it on. We, we had some good beers during the IPA-free fall. Uh, I distinctly remember some of our beers from Germany were, were quite delicious. Quite good. We had a few pumpkin-flavored things, a few things that should have been pumpkin-flavored that weren't. So it was good. It was good to branch out, but uh, I'm, ready for, I'm ready to come home, Josh. Yeah, I've started sprinkling nutmeg and cinnamon in all my beers just because. Okay, well, that's yeah. probably a bad idea. Well, this is a good kickoff back into some IPAs. This is a doozy, Dan. This is the Elevated IPA from La Cumbre Brewing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is a 7.2% ABV and 100 IBUs. Yeah, so the first sip of this thing punches you in the jaw. It is full IPA hops. And it's, you know, I feel like this is making up for all the IPAs we've missed over the last three or four months. I think you're right. I think this is the type of beer, you know, I've heard people complain who are not IPA people that they feel like IPAs these days, people just throw in as much hops as possible just to see how bitter the beer can get. This could be one of those, but I think it's uh, I think it's pretty tasty. No, it mellows out. You, after the, the second or third taste, you, you pick up on some of the other flavors lying underneath the, the hoppiness. And this is one that I will say, I don't think I would want this on a hot New Mexico summer day. This is one that I think needs to stay cold. So it's perfect that we're drinking it in the winter. Well, I did I did visit the Southwest back in November, and this is a beautiful time to be there. So maybe I would want to enjoy the elevated IPA on a nice New Mexico January day when That's, it's like 75 degrees. That is the recommendation from Hello PhD. Keep it cold. Thanks to Aspen. This is delicious. Uh, I'm loving this beer, Dan. Excellent. Well, let's keep it going. Hey, Dan, before we jump into science and news, I just wanted to share this one other thing that I came across on Twitter that I thought was pretty, pretty cool. Maybe we should start a segment. What's cool on Twitter this week? Okay, go for it. So here's what I saw. Uh, someone posted, it was a slide from a talk. And I guess one of the slides that the presenter put in their research talk was sort of an aside. And it was a quote by a guy named Peter Medawar. And I actually had to look up who Peter Medawar was. Do you know who this is? Nope. So this is Sir Peter Brian Medawar, who was a British biologist. Oh, Peter Brian Medawar. <laughs> Uh no, I still don't know. Uh so anyway, he he won the Nobel Prize in medicine. I think it was in the in the 60s for work on graft rejection and acquired immune tolerance. So very well well known and respected British scientist. But anyway, this is the quote, there is no such thing as a scientific mind. Scientists are people of very dissimilar temperaments doing different things in very different ways. Among scientists are collectors, classifiers, and compulsive tidiers up. Many are detectives by temperament, and many are explorers. Some are artists, others artisans. There are poet scientists and philosopher scientists, and even a few mystics. What sort of mind or temperament can all these people be supposed to have in common? Obligative scientists must be very rare, and most people who are in fact scientists could easily have been something else instead. That is wildly fascinating. Uh, scientists that are poets and philosophers and tidier uppers and classifiers. I mean, I know all of these people. Yeah, I, I could have people pop in into my head for each of these. I thought this was just a neat sentiment that you know sometimes we think about 
uh, who could be a good scientist. And, and, w- and we all can in different ways. There's no one size fits all. All these different roles and ways of thinking about things are all very important to scientific inquiry. Which type were you, Josh? Oh, man. I was not a compulsive tidier upper, that's for sure. Mystic? <laughs> or classic. I was the mystic. Yeah. I was a mystic poet scientist. I feel like I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons right now. I'm going to be... <laughs> Level two gnome scientist. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, just wanted to share that, Dan. Something to, to ruminate on. Very inspiring for the new year. Thanks for sharing. And now it's time for Science in the News. Hey, Josh. Do you like lobster? Yes. You actually do? Yeah, yeah I do like lobster. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I'm more of a shrimp guy. Okay. You know, I know lobster a little more high dollar, a little more gourmet, uh, but, but I don't mind lobster. Do I like lobster, Josh? No, you do not like lobster. I do not like lobster. Because? Because they're the cockroaches of the ocean. Yeah. If I recall, Dan, you do not like creatures with eye stalks. Yeah. If your eyeballs are on a stalk, I don't like the antennas. I don't like the mandibles and the way they move. And this all stemmed from, uh, I was thinking back about why, when I started to dislike lobsters. And it was in, I think, freshman high school biology class where we had to dissect crayfish. Mm, yeah. And you flip that little guy over, or gal, I don't know which one it was at the time. but You flipped it, it over, you tell me. You flipped it over, yeah, I, I don't remember. And it has those little, um, they're called swimmerettes, and oh, they're yeah. just like these little wiggly leg things that are, uh, anyways. I'm not, not, not I'm, your thing. I'm not into it. Um, but, so I, I'm not a lobster person, but uh, in the news this week, the Swiss Federal Council issued an order that beginning on March 1st, lobsters cannot be dropped into boiling water alive in Switzerland. I don't know. Have you ever cooked a lobster? Uh, not in Switzerland. <laughs> really? <laughs> huh, me either. Actually, you know what? I have, I've never cooked a lobster myself. I think I witnessed it one time, but um, not very closely. You it's, know, the, the process, though, you're not supposed to kill them and leave them out because it can develop some kind of bacterial Yeah, disease. I know it's very commonly known. You throw the live lobster in the pot, and it allegedly makes a screaming sound, which I think is not, not a vocal sound, but is... Well, this is going to... Yeah, it's, it's going to get real steam, dark real steam fast. Steam escaping sure. from, from inside the exoskeleton. From its carapace. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so they issued this rule that they, they must actually be knocked out before they're put into boiling water. And it's an it's a animal um, humanity type of move. So the idea is that you need to knock them out either by electric shock or by actually mechanically destroying the brain. And why am I talking about this in Science in the News? That's well, a great question. That is a great question. This is not culinary news. The question is, do lobsters feel pain? And that's a, that is a uh, scientific question as much as it is a philosophical question. So according to the Lobster Institute, which is a real thing that exists at the University of Maine, and, and they have studied lobsters, and they say that the nervous system of a lobster is very primitive. In fact, it is most similar to the nervous system of an insect. Neither insects nor lobsters have brains. For an organism to perceive pain, it must have a complex nervous system. Neurophysiologists tell us that lobsters, like insects, do not process pain. This is according to one of their PDF documents. So I'm thinking the Swiss Federal Council was not aware of or did not consult this literature. The, the Lobster Institute from the University of Maine. Maybe they didn't. And, and so the University of Maine Lobster Institute has a picture of a grasshopper nervous system drawn next to a lobster nervous system, and they both look like straight lines with little squiggly axons coming out of them. Now, this is a very rudimentary drawing, but the lobster one does seem to have more squiggles 
than the grasshopper one. Right. And I think the question is... Uh, I feel like I would need to see like a human one next to it. Yeah. Can you draw the gross anatomy of a nervous system and know about something that whether or not it feels pain? So um, there is a little bit of research on this. So in 2013, a study in the Journal of Experimental Biology um, done by Barry McGee and Robert W. Elwood showed that uh, shore crabs, which are not the exact same thing, but a crab and a lobster, I think we can put in the same category. Um, If you take these crabs and you put them in a brightly lit box, which they don't like to be in bright light, and there are two shelters. One shelter will give them an electric shock. One shelter is safe. So you put them in. uh, If they run to the shelter that gives them a shock, uh, they will leave it, obviously. If you put them back in, they will not go back to that shelter. They'll go to the other one. And you can actually get them after even a single experience of the shock, they will try to avoid the shocking shelter. So, so you said they don't have brains. So how do they right. learn? Yeah, what does memory mean when you don't have a brain? So I, I'm, I'm not here to answer any of these questions. I'm here to point out that there is science that is attempting to answer something that is, we talked about mystical scientists, there's something metaphysical about the experience of pain. Now, you could argue that these animals are avoiding something and it's an evolutionary response and it's like, you know, your hand pulls away from the stove before you ever experience it as pain. I mean, you it's a reaction. Um, so perhaps lobsters and crabs have this response, but you know, the fact that these creatures are learning to avoid this experience says that they are behaving as if they experience pain. Now, what does it mean to their, I don't know, their psyche if they have one? Here's the experiment I would like to see. You put two lobsters in the tank and the the... First lobster walks into the shocking shelter. The second lobster observes the first lobster getting shocked. Does the second lobster then avoid Which that would shelter? say something about lobster learning, but I still don't know that the experience of pain is a, is a, I don't know. In physiology, we learned about, you know, mammalian pain and how they studied um, sea fibers and they did the tests in cats and they were anesthetized, but you could measure the, the impulse traveling along the axon. So there is the physiological basis of a pain stimulus, but then there's something different um, that we would call pain or suffering or something that is an experience. And that is something that you, I don't think, can answer about a lobster. Well, that's why I wondered if you can have pain with no brain. You can certainly respond to an external stimulus without a brain. <laughs> you sound like can, a politician. No, no, it's <laughs> true. And, and you can evolve to avoid that. I, I think it's, it's very difficult. And, and so um, the, the study... What is pain then? Right, right. So the study's author said, I don't know what goes on in a crab's mind, but what I can say is the whole behavior goes beyond a straightforward reflex response and it fits all the criteria of pain. So for this particular researcher who did the study on crabs... He's saying they must have a, the ability to experience what we call pain based on what he sees. All right, Dan. So what, what am I to do with this? Well, um, you may want to do what the, the Swiss have done, which is instead of throwing the live lobster into the boiling water and not knowing what it's experiencing, um, to do something to incapacitate its ability to feel those things. So they recommend a mechanical destruction of the brain, which sounds super gross. So I'm going to break out my shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Move out of the way, kids. <laughs> he crawled under the kitchen counter. <laughs> <laughs> He's running up the wall. 
I'm, just, I'm sorry. I've, I've transposed cockroaches and lobsters again. Yeah, they can't do that, can they? He's flying. <laughs> yeah. They had wings. I didn't know they could do that. Yeah. The other the other suggestion was that you shock it, which I don't have any idea how you're going to do at home. I guess you pull the wires out of the outlet and it was a shock. Just give it a jolt. Shock lobster. Anyways, this is an active area of research. <laughs> Both is it? No, it is yeah, not okay. just in lobsters, but in. In, uh, you know, there's research on human cognition and what it means to um, be aware, to be conscious. And it's not just, uh, you know, if you have 3 million neurons versus 50, now you're conscious. So um, there are people studying this, and I think it's fascinating. Here is one application in culinary science. Yeah, Dan. Thanks for sharing. This was really interesting. I, I happened to look at the show notes and see that one of the news articles you linked was titled, Another Country Has Banned Boiling Live Lobsters. So there, it seems there are several that, that have gone this route. Yep, and uh, we'll post links to that article and also to the Lobster Institute's Guide for Cooking Lobsters. They've tested all the ways that you can uh, kind of incapacitate them or slow them down before cooking. You've heard of putting them in ice. You've heard of hypnotizing lobsters. Turns out I have not heard of that. one of those things actually reduces the amount of twitching they do. And I'll leave it there because I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, I would recommend, and I'm going to do this certainly, but if you're out there and you see lobster on the menu and you think to order it, be sure to ask the waiter or waitress how the lobster was incapacitated before it was boiled. That's going to really make your appetite great, isn't it? Unless you hear coming from the kitchen, (laughs) (laughs) All right, Josh, moving along. Moving on. So it's a new year, as we as we said. This is our first episode of 2018, and Dan, I love I love the new year. You know, it's it. You know, really, if you think about it, it's just another day. You know, when we go from December 31st to January 1st, there's nothing fundamentally different about that transition in time than any other any, any other day. But I really like this idea of a new beginning, a time of self reflection. And, and it really just gives us a, a time to put a marker in the sand and, and make some changes and work on some things that we've yeah, been There's something about. about it that makes you want to look back and assess the year as a unit. 2017 was a, a bookended thing that I can go talk about now. So what should a scientist do about that? Yeah, well, I'm a big resolution maker. And so, so what I thought we could do is we could talk about some... New Year's resolutions for lab people, for graduate students, for postdocs. And, and so what I decided to do, Dan, because neither of us are in the lab anymore, I thought what we could do is think about, you know, what if I could go back into time and talk to my graduate student self with the perspective I have now being past graduate school and, and now working with graduate students. If only I had fill in the blank. Exactly. So, so that's what this list, I came up with this list. I pondered on that question. What, what advice would I give myself um, if I could go back and talk to myself in graduate school? So I came up with five things. So the number one thing I would do, Dan, is I would tell myself to treat this like training and not a destination. That seems reasonable. Say, say more about the difference between those two things. Yeah, so I know, I know I've probably mentioned this before, but when I think back to my time in grad school, uh, there were certainly times that I was really distraught, and if I really think about it, I believe it was because it felt like in that moment I was going to be facing those specific challenges forever, 
they didn't feel like a temporal thing, but they felt like, oh man, I just I just can't keep coming here every day for the rest of my life doing this. Okay, in your past self's defense, that is a a real fear because there is no end point um, until you finish the experiments that lead to the figures that get built into the paper that gets through the peer review times however many your department requires you can't get out right it's it is an ongoing process with an unknown end now that's absolutely true and we've talked about that as a as a real problem i think with phd training is the the fact there is no set endpoint causes a lot of trepidation but but that being said everyone does finish eventually right it's not a permanent step um, but grant, but graduate school is a transition, and and you know I really think that I didn't recognize or didn't fully appreciate that my long term career was not going to look and feel at all like what it was like being a graduate student. Did you assume that you would uh, go into a faculty position and it would be kind of the same thing? So you do a postdoc that felt the same, and then you'd be a faculty member that felt the same. I think maybe so. You know, I don't know that I really thought about it in that level of detail, but I think I just knew okay. There are things I don't like about this period of time right now, and I'm not recognizing that, hey, this is probably only going to last another year or two, uh, and then it'll be done. You know, I think that way of thinking contributed to me, one, at times feeling depressed while I was in graduate school, and I'll talk more about that in a bit, but also it probably prevented me from enjoying or appreciating certain aspects of being a graduate student. So I think getting getting sort of wrapped up in feeling like this step was my end goal. Because there are certain things about grad school that aren't great, you know, compared to having a real job. Yeah, you feel like your life is on hold. Uh, you know, you're not making as much money as you could be someday. And it's a lot of people are, you know, they want to buy a house or start a family or get a pet rock or something. And you just feel like, well, I shouldn't do that this year, but maybe I'll graduate next year or the year after or the year after that. And it just feels like you're in kind of a stasis mode. Yeah, and I do think maybe the amount of I guess trepidation I had being in that mindset might have at times prevented me from kind of stepping back and saying, hey, you know what? This is a very finite period of time. I'm really going to enjoy the fact that I do have a little bit of freedom and, you know, the buck doesn't stop with me. You know, the amount of responsibility I have is really just limited to what I do. And as you know, Dan, as you kind of progress in your career, the amount of responsibility that gets put upon you starts to increase and that has its own stressors. Um, whereas a grad student, you don't have you have a little more flexibility and, and mental freedom there. So anyway, that was one thing, Dan. Is just kind of kind of keep in mind that the graduates the graduate student training step is just that it's a step. Yeah, it is temporary. Uh, so the second thing I thought about was I would tell myself to spend more time thinking about what I was interested in and what I actually wanted to do with my life. And I think that might have combated some of the thinking that I just talked about. Um, but one of the most useful things that I ever did that really changed my entire career perspective and allowed me really to recognize and pursue the job that I have now was spending time to self-reflect on what I even wanted out of a career and what I was even good at. Um, I think this is probably something I've talked about on a previous episode, but you know, this really was uh, a crossroads for me was was doing this as a as a postdoc. And so, so what I did was when I was a postdoc. At that point, I was having a lot of, uh, I was feeling very distraught about not knowing which direction I wanted to go with my career. I had been training in the lab for years, but really came to the conclusion I didn't want to continue doing doing lab stuff, but I didn't know what else I could do. So out of that desperation, I started keeping a list of things I liked to do, things I didn't like to do, things that gave me energy, things that sapped my energy, 
And I had a literal physical set of post-it notes on my desk. And I would go through my day as a postdoc. And if there was something that I really enjoyed doing that didn't feel much like work at all, I would write that down. Do you have different colors for things you hated and things you liked? That wasn't that great. Your coworker walks by, talking to Jim is on a red sheet. (laughs) What? That's weird. Hmm. Um, No, red's good. Red's really, uh, love it. It's uh, (laughs) heart colored. (laughs) That's right. Now get out. Now get out. So that was really illuminating for me because I started to write down things like talk to the rotation student about which lab they wanted to join. And and I loved doing that. I loved advising the students in that way. I loved training an undergrad that I was working with in the lab. And I realized in a lot of ways, when she would have a successful result and be excited about it, I was more excited about that than when I had my own results that worked out well. And I think that's the importance of of doing this, of spending time thinking about what you're interested in, because a lot of people do, like myself included, do hit that wall where we realize what we don't want to do, but we don't take that important next step of identifying what we do want to do. And sometimes if you spend some time reflecting and realizing, what am I good at? What direction do I want to go in? That actually can counteract some of those negative feelings about, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. Because one reason that's so stressful is... I don't want to do this, but I don't have anything else to focus on. There's a vacuum now. Um, so anyway. Maybe I won't like anything ever. <laughs> Eeyore syndrome, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll say this, Dan. The fact that I did that, that I wrote down the things that I, I was good at and that I liked to do, and also the things I didn't like to do and wasn't that good at, only because I had done that, that when a job announcement came up for the job I currently have, which I feel like is a great fit for me, I was able to recognize, hey, that's a good job for me and go after it because I would not, I honestly, Dan, would not have applied for that job had I not done this. Yeah. If you said, oh, I've got a PhD, this isn't the kind of job for me versus knowing, hmm, I really like advising people on this topic and I really like reading the literature on these subjects and I really like having that list. And then as you read down the job description, you light up. That's, that's the reaction you want. Yeah. I don't think I would have recognized that it was a good fit for me. So I would I'd advise people to take some time to just think about who you are and what you like to do. So the third thing is to push myself out of my introverted comfort zone a little bit more. Go on. That's interesting. <laughs> just be who you are, Josh. <laughs> so, so this may surprise some people who know me now or who interact with me on a professional basis now because I may not seem like an introvert to some people. Um, I may do have a podcast. <laughs> with just me, though. This is just you. That's right. Yeah. So I recognize to some people who know me in a professional basis now, I don't seem like an introvert, but I I feel like I've changed a little bit. You know, my current career, I think, has forced me to work some of those extrovert muscles a little bit more. Um, I'm forced to have to interact with people a lot more than I used to. Thinking about being a graduate student, besides your PI and other members of your lab, you don't necessarily have to interact with all that many people if you want to. So when I started grad school, it was really challenging for me to be in a new, um, in my case, a much larger institution. And so I left behind the comfort and support of my undergrad lab and friends. I felt very comfortable with my undergrad PI and the people I met there. So when I came to graduate school in this large institution, it felt I was very intimidated by being there. And I can remember avoiding certain situations, some professional, some social, where I could have gotten to know fellow grad students or faculty in my department better, but I avoided those just because I was, I don't know, I felt intimidated or afraid they wouldn't like me or I don't know. It's hard to, hard to explain why I didn't do it. 
Um, but I found that it was really hard to forge those relationships later on after avoiding certain people for the first three to four years. And and in retrospect, I can really see now that most people are more than willing to be your friend or become your colleague or join your network, but sometimes maybe they're too shy and you're the one that just has to put yourself out there. So that's something I would do differently. Yeah, I want to I want to play armchair psychologist here because I think the way you with the way you titled it and what you said are slightly different. Mm-hmm. So you are still an introvert. And my my understanding and my definition of that would be you regain your energy by being by yourself. You're most comfortable in a situation maybe with one person that you know really well. Mm-hmm, that's right. Or two people or your family. So so don't ask Josh to not be that person. But the other the other piece that you're talking about is the feeling of discomfort of being a little bit afraid of making this transition when you were just an undergrad at a small liberal arts college to this big university. And I think what you're saying is don't miss the opportunity because that seems scary. Like recognize that you're having those feelings, but uh, try it out anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I realize there are things that seemed really scary back then that now I can see wouldn't have been scary. And, and I might've missed out on some building some relationships. It's not as if introverts can't go to big universities. And, and that's not at all what you're saying. What you're saying is there, there's a way to be introverted to get your energy in a space with a lot of new people, and you just got to recognize it and deal with it rather than being swept away. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can, you know, I think these are muscles and, and skills that you can, you can build. It's a good and, way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, and become easier over time because I found the hardest time to put yourself out there and maybe introduce yourself to some new people is the first time. And then you do it, and it goes okay. And then you do it again and again, and it gets easier. And you still need to recharge those batteries, because like you said, you are still who you are. But you stop fearing certain things that you don't necessarily need to fear. How about the first time a student walked in, uh, in your advising capacity, in your current job, first time you had a class of students, and, and they said, okay, we need to be paired with PIs, and we need some training on these skills. And we need. I'm, I'm sure that's like really scary but now you would say oh yeah that was tuesday and i had 15 students come through and it's fine don't even think about it yeah so the muscle is a good analogy there so so the the fourth thing is i would do more experiments just because i think they were cool versus because i thought they were going to push my project forward does that make sense Oh, it makes sense, and I'm and I'm already my heart is aching. <laughs> Do you identify with this one at all? Yeah. So explain what you mean, and then and then we'll talk. And, and some of this is good. You know, I think I'm a I'm a very strategic person, Dan. You know, I like um, strategy board games and game theory and things like that. So a lot of times, the way I approached graduate school was thinking about, okay, what's the victory condition of graduate school? Well, it's to graduate. Well, how do you graduate? You have to get a couple papers. Well, how do you get a paper? You have to get this figure, these experiments, to get these figures. So I think I almost went too far in that mindset where when I thought about my project and thought about the science I was doing, I really put these blinders on where it was like, okay, well, I need to get figure one, two, and three done. So I have to do this experiment then that experience and became very almost more formulaic than creative. And I tend to think of myself as a fairly creative person. You're a mystic. <laughs> I'm a mystic. You're an arti- artist and an artisan. <laughs> Maybe so, but I didn't always treat my science that way. I mean, something positive about it. I did publish some papers and that's great. But I think a downside was it sucked some of the joy out of doing science for me um, because I wasn't thinking about it as creatively as I could have. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to respond to. There, There's this tyranny of necessity, right? I have to get these things done. Therefore, I shouldn't do any of these other things that might be cool, but not paper worthy. 
Uh, I think what you're suggesting here is that some of those cool things not only uh, maybe build up your confidence and your joy at doing science, but also could lead to a discovery that you didn't expect. Absolutely. And one that you would be super excited about because it would spring forth from some crazy idea that you thought was interesting. Yeah. My reaction when you first read this was, though, the warning, the I was trying to think back. I was like, was it, were there any experiments that I thought would be really cool to do? And by the end of my time, I could, I'm, I'm sure I could not think of anything that I thought was interesting because so much of that joy had been taken away that I was, I was no longer able to look at an experiment as a positive, fun, exciting, what will I find thing. It had gotten moldy and rotted. And so there was nothing redeeming about it for me. But if I had started earlier, if I had said, well, this is really interesting... And, and then pursued some of those things in addition to my regular science, I think maybe that would have helped. Yeah, absolutely. I can remember being an undergrad and very new to the lab. It was probably within my first month or two that I was, I was in a research lab. And I was working on this bacteria that made this, these toxins and, and kind of had this crazy idea. The lab across the hall worked on C. elegans, you know, the little nematode worms. And so my PI and I were talking one day and we thought, wouldn't it be cool I wonder if we, you know, I was already isolating toxin for other reasons to try to figure out how the toxin worked. Like, what if we, what if we just dumped some toxin, different types of toxin on these worms and see if it did anything, you know, and. Did you mechanically destroy their brains first? (laughs) Uh, I got my shotgun out. Okay. (laughs) The trusty old lab shotgun. (laughs) That's right. It hangs above the tissue culture hood. So we, we got these nematode worms from the lab next door, and we put the toxin on, and, and it didn't end up going anywhere. But I remember how excited I was. I remember calling my mom, like, whoa, we did this thing, and then this happened, and who knows what that's going to mean, you know? You did it for the joy of discovery, because you didn't know what would happen, as opposed to, Absolutely. this will fit figure 4B, and that will finish my paper. Yeah, and certainly I was a naive undergraduate back then, you know, like I said, a month into the lab. But I can really still remember that excitement that I felt about an experiment that I did. But your fifth year self would say, oh, I could put this toxin into these worms. Like, I'm not going to waste time on that. Yeah, that's not going to lead to... Yeah, I don't have time to do that right now. Anyway, if I could go back, I would have spent some more time maybe maybe playing in the lab. All right, Dan, the last one, and, and this is not last and least important, but... I think I would tell myself that it's okay to get mental help. And I got to the end of graduate school. And, and you know, I want to say, too, I had a very supportive PI. I had a great relationship with my PI and the other people in my lab. Um, so, you know, there weren't necessarily even issues there, but just the process of graduate school can be really, really stressful. And it was while I was writing my dissertation during, I don't know, my fifth year of graduate school. And I can remember I was sitting on my couch. I was trying to analyze this data and it wasn't looking like I needed it to look, but I needed it to look a certain way to graduate. And it was, I thought I was gonna have to do more experiments. And suddenly I could just feel my heart start racing. <laughs> and then, the dread. I mean, well, that's the, that's the description, right? Well, and I can remember, Dan, I can't remember, I might've told you about this back at the time. I convinced myself in that moment, like, oh my gosh, am I having a heart attack? Is that what's happening right now? Am I dying right now? What's going on? But I realized I was having a panic attack in the middle of trying to write my dissertation. And and that led to me... You are not the first and you will not be the last. Absolutely. And that led to me realizing like, oh man, this is not good. I need to get some get some help. And so so that led to me seeking out a counselor in, in our town. 
and and meeting with her on a weekly basis to talk about you know how I was feeling about grad school and career and life in general and relationships and and it was really a game changer and and if I could go back and and give myself advice back in those days I wish I would have done that sooner. Yeah, before you got to the place where you didn't know if you were dying, right? The, like, <laughs> right. who needs that? Right, right. I would have loved Stop to avoid Stop the train that. before that station. Yeah. Um, so anybody listening now, if, if this sounds familiar, and I, and I had obviously similar experiences, and we're going to do a whole episode, well, maybe more than one, who knows? We, we've got on the schedule this year to talk about mental health specifically. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons we started the podcast. I have had some experiences, Josh has had some experiences that tell us this is one of the most important overlooked problems in graduate school and in science in general. So we're going to cover it. But um, if that sounds like you, if, if, it, if you're having these panic attacks, if you're feeling even the twinge of like, I'm, I'm just less interested in what I'm working on, definitely go out and talk to somebody. Get a, you know, go to the campus health services, find a counselor. There's absolutely no shame in it. And a lot of times, just having that asset will help get you back to feeling the way you used to feel. So take advantage of it. That's right. I mean, we said at the very beginning, grad school is a temporary step, and that's great. And, and don't forget that. But it doesn't mean it's an easy step. And, and certainly, there's no shame in getting, getting some help and support to get you through it. In fact, I would say there's some pride in it, right? Being the person that recognizes it and can go do something about it takes a lot of courage. And so um, to me, that's that's the upside. That's the person who really is taking care of themselves. Absolutely. All right, Dan, those were, those were my resolutions. Good resolutions. Some of those probably apply to you today, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about these things and this is an ongoing, an ongoing thing. These are certainly things for me to continue to think about that I think will help with, with my career even today. So hello, PhD is not training. It is a destination. (laughs) Tune your podcatcher. Hello, PhD is a journey. Okay, that's true. That is. All right. Go listen to episode one. You'll find that out. (laughs) Oh, okay, Dan. You ready for some etymology? I sure am. The clue last week. To study animal-microbe interactions, you must know every living thing in this type of research facility. You know, Dan, I studied animal-microbe interactions in graduate school and in my postdoc, but you stumped me. Okay. This is a very specific type. So you studied pathogen mouse interactions, right? And cells. And And cells, okay, yep. Uh So you're familiar with this whole field of research on the microbiome and the gut and how the bacteria interact with the animal. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to do that research, you have to make a germ-free mouse, effectively, and then introduce whatever bacteria you're interested in studying. Mm -hmm, That's right. So the title for this, the name for this is notobiosis or notobiotic animal, and this is G-N-O-T-O. Uh, you'll recognize that root because that means known and bios is life. So if you if you know the word agnostic, that is somebody who does not know, agnostic. Um, so this is notobiosis. And I think it's super awesome field of science. And uh, I think we're learning so much about these things that live inside us that, that are affecting our mood and our nutrition and our behavior. And Yeah, it's really cool stuff, things that are external to us but control us in these very interesting ways. But they are so complex. There are so many of them that you have to reduce them down to know them. And so this is notobiotic. That's cool, Dan. Okay. I'll give you the clue for next week, Josh. Enlarged blood vessels may make these lesions resemble the spindly legs of a crab. Super gross clue this week. 
Enlarged blood vessels may make these lesions resemble the spindly legs of a crab. Uh, I drew this from this week's Science in the News. So remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. If you have a question or topic idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. If you do this before February 6th, you can join in our chat with patrons. We'd appreciate the beer money, and we'd love to talk to you. And thanks to Peter for being a new patron this week. All right. Well, excellent episode. I'm so excited to start 2018, and I can't wait to see uh, what our listeners have in store for us via the letters and tweets they send us, and also what we can uh, do to continue that conversation. So we're excited about another year of episodes. Yeah, we had a little a little get-together a few days ago, and we've got some really cool things planned for the new year. going to be an exciting year for Hello PhD. All crustacean suffering topics. <laughs> Only thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>